Lights, camera, action. We've got a Kate's Take Flashback Friday episode. We're re-airing an episode of the first show that Gal's Guide produced because it's movie month. So this week is an in-depth and moving analysis of the 2017 Wonder Woman starring Gal Gadot. This episode is deeply personal. It's gut-wrenching at times but also inspirational and eye-opening. This is one of those few episodes that also has a transcription due to the numerous requests. You can read the transcription at galsguide.org. Originally aired November 16th, 2017, enjoy our Flashback Friday, Kate's Take, Wonder Woman. Welcome to Kate's Take from galsguide.org. Each week I talk about a movie that has shaped my life and I'll teach you how to dissect a movie and find the life lessons hidden within. Hello and welcome back to Kate's Take. Last episode, I did my top five films directed by women that have influenced my life. Wonder Woman, if you recall, was number two. And the only reason it wasn't number one was because I hadn't lived with it. I hadn't absorbed it and honestly dealt with the emotional nerves that it hit. But now I'm ready. And as Wonder Woman says in the opening narration, I will never be the same. As always with this show, I'm going to be honest of what the film meant to me. Every film leaves fingerprints on a viewer, and these are mine. So in this episode, we're going to look at the universal lessons in Wonder Woman, and there are lots of them. So at the start, Diana is the only child on the island, and as the firstborn grandchild of my own family, I do tap into this. My first cousin is 10 years younger than me. So for a while at family gatherings, my brother and I were the only little ones, and I was the only girl. Family gatherings were sitting around a large table and watching the adults talk. For Diana, they talk about war and the Amazons and Ares that might never come, yet they need to be prepared for it. I understand Hippitalia wanting to let her daughter be a child and not worry yet about war. I related to not worrying about talking about boys with my daughters, only to find out that this would be a hurdle as early as kindergarten. I wish many times that I had a sister like Antiope. Now, Antiope trains Diana in secret so she can be ready when Ares returns. And it feels like a metaphor for preparing your daughters for protecting themselves against the extreme possible dangers of men. Now, the statistics of sexual abuse for women is one in three. And take a minute. I'm a mom with two daughters. I'm one in three. And I want to have the blind hope that because I'm the one that has been sexually abused that I statistically protect them. But in talking with many other women and seeing the hashtag me too, the gap is actually smaller. Last summer, two of my closest friends were date raped and a six-year-old who was my neighbor and my daughter's playmate was sexually abused. Three in the span of a month. And these are just the friends who told me. The world got scarier, and if we could go to an island of women to be safe, we would. But even on this paradise, they fear and prepare for Ares. Now, sure, a god, but a male version of destruction. So Hippolyta fears the stronger Diana gets, the sooner Ares will find her. There is not a parent out there that doesn't fear this time that their daughter will be sexually attractive to boys and men. And generally speaking, fathers joke that they're going to get shotguns and protect against suitors. But mothers start shrinking and succumbing 
to the over-encompassing fear. Please let the guy she dates be a good person with good intentions is what our internal dialogue is. We parents put our focus on the boy and his intentions and not prepare our daughters for battle. So as Antiope says during training Diana harder than any other Amazon, she says, never let your guard down. You expect the battle to be fair. The battle will never be fair. Now that line can be a motto for career, but it's certainly true for relationships. Now books like The Art of War ease the comparison of battle and business. I don't like to think of relationships as a battle, but I am starting to see the connection. I've been married for almost 20 years, and though we generally have a peace treaty, we do have moments of battle. And in those moments of battle, there is no winner. Both of us are hurt, just like war. When Steve Trevor arrives on the island, he brings the war to them. He explains to a community of women who have been preparing for Ares, who will bring with him war, that beyond that barrier, there is a war to end all wars, and has already killed so many and on the brink of killing many more. Diana sees the connection that Ares must be behind it, and Queen Mother forbids it. Steve even understands her decision. He wouldn't want anyone he cares for getting anywhere near the war. But he also tells her his father's advice. If you see something wrong happening in the world, you can do nothing or you can do something. And I've already tried nothing. It's a powerful line that is vague enough to mean whatever you need it to mean. For Diana, her call to action is to betray her mother and get the God Killer sword to go with Steve to stop Ares and the war. Now, when Diana goes to get the sword, there is this really small but wonderful moment that I caught in the film. It's Diana's self-doubt. Now, Antiope even noticed this as a flaw in Diana when she was training her. She said, you are stronger than you believe. You have greater powers than you know. So before leaping across the gorge to the resting place of the god killer sword, she hesitates. She doubts her abilities, but she finds power in what she's doing is right, and she tries anyway. In doing so, she almost falls, but she finds untapped strength. It's not until you do that thing that you find your strength or your weakness in it. Now, the sword is a MacGuffin. It is a desired object that the hero thinks they need to win against the villain. The sword, as we find out later, is not the god killer. She is. Diana was created to be able to defeat Ares. Her power to defeat him also makes her a target. The sword can symbolize the dual nature or the metaphoric use of the phrase double-edged sword. You can also be very brazen about it in saying she's taking something phallic to protect her into the man's world. Before we get into Man's World, I want to talk about the fog or the bubble protection over Themyscira. For the last few years, I've been working for Gal's Guide to the Galaxy, and I can certainly say that there is a fog over women's lives. To some extent, it is a protection. And in other ways, it is a barrier that people don't brave to cross over into. Also, some simply can't see it. I joke that Gal's Guide is kryptonite to a lot of men, and I see it in very simple ways, like men not being able to even get our name right. Uh, we've heard uh, Girl's Guide, Women Galaxy, Girl's Group thing. Even when I personally invited men that I know to our events, I get the, I didn't even pay attention to it, figuring it was just a women's thing. I also hear from some women that they don't want to be seen as a supporter of any kind of feminism or even be labeled as an SJW because others might get upset uh, and it might make them a target. 
So when focusing on women's issues, a fog is created and some can break through that barrier and some can't. It does bug me because I've spent most of my life with no problems whatsoever learning from the men in my past field of filmmaking. It was a person to learn from. So Gal's Guide simply puts a spotlight on women's voices, offering stories and opportunities to learn about women of history, a history that is many times hidden in that fog. I wish female role models could be equally celebrated among all genders, but we're just not there yet. When Diana sees Man's World for the first time, it's in the shape of jolly old London, and her response is, it's hideous. Diana's naivete and curiousness is adorable. Also, Steve protecting her and trying to get her to fit in is adorable as well. Now, clothes are actually a big part of that. When Diana asks what these women wear into battle, Steve says they don't. And then he's cut off because Diana sees an adorable baby. Women nowadays do go into the front lines of battle. Even back in history, when women weren't allowed in the armed forces, women dressed up as men to serve during wartime. Taking the metaphor even further, women are fighting a different kind of battle every day. And sometimes the clothes we wear are a reflection of that battle uniform. Wonder Woman has her battle uniform. Etta Candy has her secretary uniform. Steve Trevor has his spy uniform. Our clothes in movies reflect our battles, and this is reflected even further with Samir and Charlie and Chief. Now, Etta Candy for a second. She says, I really like her to Diana, but I really like Etta Candy. I like her far more in this than I do in the comics. She is that middle of the road feminist that wants better for women. However, she is trying to survive her place in the world, which includes sucking it up the best she can. What I love about her brief character is she still comes off honest. She also represents us bigger girls when she explains that a corset keeps our tummies in. And when Diana is confused by this, she responds, only a woman with no tummy would ask that question. <laughs> so when Diana is confused of how women fight in this period garb, Edda says, fight, we use our principles. Yet her body language really reads that she is struggling with that answer because she is not opposed to fighting. Fighting is just around the corner, and as Diana and Steve are followed, uh, director Patty Jenkins describes the alley scene as an homage to the alley scene in Richard Donner's Superman. However, the roles are reversed. The gun is still pointed at the man in the scene, but the act of rejection is by Steve instead of Lois, and the bullet is stopped by Wonder Woman instead of Superman. The big difference in this sequence is that Superman is hiding his powers from Lois, Wonder Woman is not. The streets of London and a clothing boutique were the first steps into man's world. The real entry point is behind a door full of men negotiating an armistice to the war. Steve enters and tells Diana, stay here. Now, I could go on a mythological tangent. I could say that it's Pandora's box, that it's hero's journey, that it's a clear threshold to her journey to the unknown world. I could even say that it's showing character, that Diana is a warrior and won't be told what to do. But no. Those two words make me sink into myself. Frankly, I am sick of them. It's all too common in movies and TV shows that the hero is about to do some hero-like shit and they tell the weaker character, stay here. And most times they do. The reason that it bugs me is that it's generally a dude saying it to a woman. In X-Men Apocalypse, it's B saying it to Mystique. In Terminator, it's a cop saying it to Linda Hamilton. In Return of the Jedi, it's Han saying it to Luke and Leia. And in Stranger Things, I stop counting at four. The number of times Hopper or one of the kids tells Eleven to stay here. 
Now, I know it's a protection thing, but I also know that I've heard it too damn many times in my life. It's a statement of power, and it's designed to be demobilizing. It comes off as, I'm more equipped to handle this situation. It also wrecks the team dynamic, and it screams, I'm going to go be a hero all by myself because men don't need to work together. I'm so sick of it because I don't want crucial moments when the fight or flight response kicks in for a woman to decide to stay here because movies and culture taught her that that is her only option. In the context of the Wonder Woman scene, you have a trained warrior who believes that she is the only one that can stop the war and behind that door is a peaceful means to end it without bloodshed yet she is asked to stay outside its doors. The audience wants and needs her to walk through that door. But when she does, we're reminded that not only is she an Amazon, but she is a woman. And the conversations stop, the eyes stare, the mouths gasp, and someone utters, there's a woman here, followed by, get her out. Diana showed us it's okay to walk through that door. She also showed us how fast we can be removed. And I'm sure you're thinking, well, this was a different time and cultural perceptions about women in power were different then, right? Is it? We're talking about World War I and the 1910s. Well, then why this year was Uber sued for gender discrimination? Why are the leaders of the film industry and Fortune 500 companies only 5% women? The gatekeepers are still holding up these gender stereotypes and the idiotic double standards against 51% of the population. And it's worse, way worse for women of color. Now, Diana is allowed into a private meeting because Steve vouches for her and he says that they are working together. Now, no one in that room can figure out the two languages in Dr. Poison's book, but Diana can. When she does, the question doesn't arise, how does she know this? But who is this woman? She's identified as Steve's secretary, which neither Diana nor I like. Then again, I'm not supposed to. So it's these cringing moments like stay here and Diana being called a very good secretary that are brilliant because they are a combination of the movie sequence and time, but also today's culture. They are designed to imprint believing that Diana is the most qualified person in the room, but only her gender is stopping her from being listened to. Now, this is also subtle as hell. But when the colonel, who told Steve to get Diana out of the room, he changes a 180. He says to the men, if this woman can read it, we should hear what she has to say. So cringing moments followed by teaching moments. When a person, regardless of gender, race, mythic background, is allowed to speak, new information is learned. But politics get in the way. Steve and Diana don't want to see more people die. The brass wants nothing to stop the signing of the armistice. Both are right from their point of view, but politics is all about policy power first, not people. Diana calls them out and shames them, but Steve escorts her out. So even though Steve gets her out of the room, he sees that there was no chance in changing their mind. So instead, he's just going to take Diana to the front and stop the gas anyway. And for that, they need reinforcements. So the team in Wonder Woman is something that I did not expect to see, but I love so much because they were diverse and they were given backstory. You had Samir, who is Arabic, Chief, who's Native American, Charlie, who's Scottish, all along the American Steve Trevor. And as I said in the Directed by Women episode, it reminded me of one of my favorite feminist films, The Wizard of Oz. 
So Dorothy follows the yellow brick road on a quest to ask the wizard to send her home. Diana goes on a quest to find Ares to stop the war. Dorothy meets up with Scarecrow, the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, and by working together, they defeat the Wicked Witch of the West, and they learn the truth about the Wizard of Oz. Diana teams up with Steve, Samir, Charlie, and Chief, and work together to stop Dr. Poison, who is called a witch at one point, to learn the truth about Ares. Now, unlike the Wizard of Oz... Diana has to prove her worth to Samir and Charlie as they are not willing to go to the front for a wee lass and no money. But when Sir Patrick shows up, knowing that they are going to defy command, he says it's honorable. But he also knows no one will do anything without money, so he supplies it. Now, why does he do this? Well, of course, major spoilers if you haven't seen the film... Sir Patrick is Ares. He seemingly helps the group of rebels stop the war because in doing so, he can have Edda in his office and know where the group is and what they are up to. He can also keep an eye on Diana. Now, whether or not he knows she is an Amazon or the God Killer isn't clear. However, in knowing their plans, he'll be able to know for sure what she is capable of. Now, being a student of history, as I am, I like this dynamic in the character because many companies fund both sides of wars. War is big business, and it's too lengthy to cover, and it would be a major rabbit hole. But look into Standard Oil, General Motors, and the Ford Motor Company, especially during World War II, funding both sides, and you'll see how this quick scene in Wonder Woman is grounded in war history. After a wonderful ice cream snack, the team is on the way to the front. On the way, Diana sees the horrors of war, the wounded soldiers, the innocents trying to flee, and it's a buildup of emotion. But first, a teachable moment once again. The team arrives at the camp to meet Chief. As Diana and Chief shake hands, he speaks in his native tongue, and there are no subtitles. Even though we don't know what is said in the moment, Diana responds, and I am Diana. Now, a couple of things that tug at my heartstrings. Number one, of the many languages she knows, an indigenous American language is one of them. I love that. And number two, not being translated puts the focus on the language and not the words. And the reason why I love that is because representation matters. In an article by Indian Country Today, they explain that actor Eugene Braverock speaks Blackfoot. In character, he introduces himself as Nappy, the Blackfoot demigod who is a trickster and a storyteller. And it goes beyond that. Brave Rock, with the support of director Patty Jenkins, chose his wardrobe to reflect and honor his culture. Now, just imagine for a second being of Native American descent and seeing yourself actually respected on screen in such a big budget film. It's not a small moment. It's a teachable one. And the teaching continues. When Diana and Chief talk while the rest of the team is asleep, Chief calls the bombs in the distance the evening hate which I think is probably the best description of war I've ever heard. Diana asks why he is there, and he says he doesn't fight, so Diana assumes it's for money. But as we see later, Chief turns down gifts from the townspeople that he helped save. He's not there for money. He talks about how the last war took everything from his people. Chief has seen war. He knows what it can do. And he says, at least here, I'm free. Now, I will ask the loaded question, what does that say about America when our native people need to go to another country's war zone to feel free? 
On the trek to the front, Diana is conflicted and she wants to help everyone she sees. The animals, the soldier with the shot off leg, the crying children. It's a lot to take in and it's a lot to stuff down. Now, the arrival at No Man's Land. Now, this is a good time to talk about this film taking place in World War I instead of how the comic books took place in World War II. In an interview in Entertainment Weekly, screenwriter Alan Heinsberg explains that World War I was used because, quote, it's the first time we had automated war. The machine gun was a new invention. Gas was used for the first time. New horrors were unleashed every day, end quote. It's also the first time that No Man's Land was used in a wartime context. Steve explains that No Man's Land is that no man can cross it and that they have tried for a year, but they have made up little ground. It's not something that you can cross. It's impossible. So the team is actually trying to make its way through the trenches to another crossing point that is about a day away. However, Diana has seen and ignored enough. And to use Steve's words, she tried doing nothing and now she's going to do something. I feel like the whole setting of Wonder Woman being in World War I was for this moment. I didn't prepare myself for how powerful it would be. I I joked in episode 26 that seeing her deflect bullets was like deflecting internet comments, but it's a lot more. It's entering a career field that's dominated by men. It's joining a mom's club only to prepare to defend your parenting style. It's dating in college or dating in your 40s. It's having an opinion. It's existing in a world that thinks you don't belong. It's standing up for what's right. It's doing something to make the world better, even if no one pays attention. It's being a leader. It's having a kid. It's changing a class. It's blazing a trail. It's taking fire so that someone else has a chance to make up some ground. So to get a bit metaphoric, the path of no man's land is a metaphor for human life. You stand up for something or someone. The bullets start slow. You deflect them with ease. Some join in to aid you. You pick up the pace. You make more ground. The bullets get more consistent, and soon there will be so many that they stop you in your tracks. You work harder at defense than you do at working at moving forward. And this is when more people come to your aid. They see you taking fire and they draw off their attack. They divide and conquer. They move the invisible line. They break the glass ceiling. No one does this alone. There is no stay here. This strategy has been used for good and evil throughout history, but it starts the same. One person stands up and a movement is activated. The unfortunate part is hate is an element, hence the duality of good and evil. Being a justice for peace, but also a god of war, is that complex dynamic that is Wonder Woman. After the battle for No Man's Land has been won and the town is saved, we get to know the team a little bit better. We get to know that Samir wanted to be an actor, but he says he was the wrong color. That's pretty freaking deep and sad right there. But Samir teaches Diana another layer of empathy. We know that she has it when she sees people suffering. However, she does take people as their labels. Generals should be with soldiers in battle. A marksman should be able to shoot. But Samir explains not everyone gets to be what they want to be all the time. And he explains everyone is fighting their own battles just as you are fighting yours. And that is such a wonderful empathic lesson. 
Now, the boys talk about Diana's belief that Ludendorff is Aries, a conclusion that Diana comes to when Steve is on the phone with Sir Patrick. So, you know, Sir Patrick heard all that. Samirian chief believed Diana that Ludendorff is Aries. Charlie doesn't. Steve isn't sure. It shows that believing in a woman, even if she's Wonder Woman, is still a hurdle. By the way, when Diana wants to go to the gala, Steve tells her to stay put. Again, she doesn't do it. She puts those swing skills to use that Steve taught her and dances with Ludendorff to hear him spout, War gives man purpose. Diana hears what she needs to and she is about to strike, but Steve stops her and asks her, what if you're wrong? And also, they still need to find out where the rest of the gas is. Now, the gas is released onto the village. Diana is too late and she blames Steve for not believing in her. Wonder Woman battles Ludendorff, who is high on what I'm going to call crack, but she kills him with the God Killer sword and the war doesn't stop. Steve sums it up pretty well. He says, quote, maybe people aren't always good. Diana wants to believe the good in people and that everything that is terrible in them is caused by Ares. After telling Diana to stay twice, he asks her to come with him to stop the gas. She doesn't. I will say the girl is consistent. Samir, Chief, Charlie, and Steve make a plan to follow the gas. Meanwhile, Sir Patrick shows up and reveals himself to be Ares. He does a little Emperor Palpatine speech and tells her that the sword is not the god killer that she is. He wants them to combine their powers and destroy mankind for what they've done. And like Luke Skywalker, she doesn't join the dark side and battles a dude with electricity. When they battle, Steve makes a sacrifice play to detonate the plane loaded with gas in the air. Now, I knew Steve was probably going to die, but I, I also don't think he's going to be gone for good just because he died or was near death a lot in the comics and he always seemed to come back. Uh, it was still a very sad scene, though, because it was a conflict between two really bad decisions and he chose the one that would save more people. Diana, now with Steve's death, understands humans' complexity. She chooses to believe in love and kills her brother, the god of war. And for a while, there is peace. I wish a comic book movie was right and that all the evil in the world was just the work of one god or one force. But in reality, it's many forces and it's overwhelming the many ways that humanity does terrible things to its own people. We're selfish, and we're proud, and we're naive, and we keep our heads down. We're cogs in the wheel or lost in the matrix. I wish it was one guy to take out of Hollywood who sexually harasses women, but it's not. I wish it was one mass shooter to remove, but it's not. I wish it was one racist cop to fire, but it's not. I wish it was one ignorant person in political office, but it's not. As Steve says, we're all to blame. Diana learns that humanity has a lightness and a darkness and that each has to make their own decision which one to follow. And a superhero can't make us choose to be good or evil. All they can do is live by example. And that's why Wonder Woman is a superhero we've all been waiting for. It only took 75 years to get it right, to get it on the big screen. Till next time. Kate's Take is brought to you by Gal's Guide to the Galaxy. For more information, including links to our Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, visit galsguide.org. 